Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from a psychologist about the fallibility of human memory and about the software tools she has designed to report workplace discrimination and harassment. This week we look at the emerging field of ancient DNA and what it tells us about our ancestors. There have been past scientific revolutions in archaeology. The most important and the first one was the radiocarbon dating revolution, which provided direct dates on ancient cultures and really changed the way people saw the past. This is a more important revolution even than that. That was David Reich, professor of genetics at Harvard and author of a book entitled Who We Are and How We Got Here. He came into the FT studio to talk to Clive Cookson, our science editor, about how the genomic revolution is affecting paleontology and the study of human prehistory. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to be here, Clive. So, before we get on to the fascinating findings of ancient DNA research about prehistoric movements of human populations, let's start with the technology that you're using. And as a former organic chemistry student, I'm still amazed by the survival power of what I would have thought a long time ago as rather a fragile molecule. So, tell us how you get DNA out of old bones and other human remains, and then how you analyze and read it. The technology for getting DNA out of old bones has been developing over the last 30 years, led by laboratories in Europe, really. But there's been a real breakthrough in the last 10 years where it's been possible to extract whole genomes of similar quality to the ones we obtained from modern people from ancient specimens, sometimes tens of thousands or even more than 100,000 years old. And what we do when we get ancient DNA from an old bone or an old tooth is we grind up some powder from the tooth in a very clean environment. We have a clean room such as is used in a microchip fabrication facility that protects the sample from the people handling it. We wear spacesuits to protect the sample from our DNA. We are DNA bombs full of DNA, and there's so little DNA in the sample that it's easy to contaminate. We bleach down the surfaces and the chemicals we use, and we use UV light. And all of these things are to protect the sample from our DNA. We take this powder that we've obtained, we dissolve it in a watery solution that releases the DNA. We then convert the DNA into a sequenceable form and then sequence it in one of these modern sequencing machines that were developed in the late 2000s and have made sequencing literally 100,000 times less expensive than they were before that time. So what's the oldest DNA that you or anyone else has successfully extracted from human remains or indeed from other plant or animal remains? The oldest mammalian DNA is about 700,000 years old. It's a horse found in permafrost in Alaska, and the whole genome was obtained from it by a colleague in Denmark. And the oldest human? Much poorer quality, but the oldest human DNA is about 450,000 years old. It's a pre-Neanderthal from Spain. And just to be clear, to get the best results, you compare the DNA, the genomes of these ancient people with those living today, because you need a framework, don't you, of current human populations to make the most of it. Is that right? That's usually what we do, and especially when we're studying DNA from ancient 
humans that are relatively close in time to the present. We study present-day variation, and we see how these ancient people relate to the present-day ones. But sometimes, when we're looking at sufficiently old individuals, such as from Ice Age Europe or other very old specimens, we just compare the ancient samples to each other because they're so remote in time that present-day variation is not very information-rich about how they relate to each other. Okay, well, let's start discussing the results as far back in time as we can. So what has ancient DNA research told us about the evolution of modern humans, both in our ancestral African homeland and then across Europe and Asia? What have you learned? The archaeological and fossil record shows that there were many groups of archaic humans as little as 50,000 years ago in different parts of the world. There's only one group of humans now, which is modern Homo sapiens sapiens. But at that time, there were many groups, and DNA has successfully been extracted from some of those archaic groups living outside of Africa. Neanderthals and a completely unanticipated group called Denisovans that my colleagues in Germany discovered and that I was involved in analyzing. And so with the DNA extracted from these Neanderthals in Europe and the Denisovans in Central Asia, it's been found that these populations, we now know how they're related to us. They're separated by about a half million years since they share a common ancestor. We know that they're related to each other, but very anciently. And we know that both of them interbred with the ancestors of people living today in different ways at least three times. Did all this happen in Eurasia, or do you think there was similar mixing in Africa? It's surely the case that this also happened in Africa. Africa was a place dense with different human populations. It is our homeland of our particular branch of humans. Ancient DNA has really been much more successful to date, although this is beginning to change outside of Africa than inside Africa. And because we don't have ancient DNA, it's harder to fish out where the bits of ancient archaic ancestry and modern humans are in Africans, but even that is possible. And there's pretty strong hints that there's archaic ancestry also mixed into African populations and their descendants who live outside of Africa. So when do you think our Homo sapiens ancestors first moved out of Africa? I know the date's being put back, and there was some archaeological discoveries in Israel pushing it back to maybe... 170,000, 200,000 years ago. What's your current view based on your work? So humans first go out of Africa almost 2 million years ago, but these are very archaic humans, Homo erectus, spreading out almost 2 million years ago. The ancestry of non-Africans today is from an expansion that happened very dramatically all around the world around 50,000 years and afterward. But in the Near East, um, Middle East, there's clear evidence of modern humans like us, 100,000, 130,000, and now even older, as you said, in the Near East. In some sense, you should think of the Near East as an extension of Africa ecologically. And so really, the question for me often is, when did the expansion out of Africa in the Near East happen? And there is some really interesting evidence that there may have been some quite early expansion of modern humans beyond the Near East and mixed into the Neanderthals, because there's bits of DNA in Neanderthals that looked like they might have come from modern humans a few hundred thousand years ago. So what does this say for the old out-of-Africa scenario? It's largely the correct view. There was a view in the 70s that perhaps humans had evolved in each place in the world, in Africa, in East Asia, in Europe, from the local humans who had been there for a couple of millions of years. But there was a consensus from genetics and archaeology that developed in the late 80s that almost all ancestry of humans today comes out of Africa sometime around 50,000 years or so ago. 
That's still largely true, but all non-Africans have about 2% of their DNA from these archaic Neanderthals, and some non-Africans have an additional few percent of DNA from Denisovans. And so what's true now and what we see now is that it's a mostly out-of-Africa scenario, but there are some lineages in non-Africans today that are from these archaic humans who were established there for many, many hundreds or thousands or perhaps even more than a million years before. And you put in your book the hypothesis that there could have been a return to Africa as part of this moving and melting process. Yeah, I think there's been a pendulum swing toward we've been in Africa, our lineage, the whole time ever for many, many millions of years. African great apes, chimpanzees and gorillas are our closest relatives and separated from us five to 10 million years ago. The Australopithecines, the upright walking apes, clearly first evolved in Africa from the fossil record. And Homo erectus moved out of Africa sometime after two million years ago. And because there's so much Africa, because Africa is so central to our story and because modern humans moved out of Africa again sometime after 50,000 years ago, it's tempting to think that we've been in Africa the whole time. But I think that pendulum swing is perhaps a bit too far. And Eurasia is a rich and complex environment and could have housed our lineage for some of that time. Let's move on to 40, 50,000 years ago and this great sweep of Homo sapiens, modern humans across Europe and Asia, wiping out the existing other populations. Do we know whether they were actually killed off by us, the Denisovans, Neanderthals and others, or was it climatic factors? What did them in and left us as the supreme and only species? I think that's an extraordinarily important question, and it's one that genetics provides some information about but doesn't solve. Genetics really can't figure out how it was that the Neanderthals disappeared. They certainly didn't completely disappear as they were mixed in with modern humans. But we know they disappeared fairly rapidly from the archaeological record, and we know they contributed only a very little bit to humans living today. Same with the Denisovans. I think that one of the things that's useful to think about here is that there are many, many examples that we now know from ancient DNA of extinct populations, groups that once lived in places and no longer exist anymore. And that's not just limited to Neanderthals and Denisovans, but also to modern humans. So if we look at the first humans we have from Europe, uh, we have, for example, DNA from a 40,000-year-old individual from Romania. And that man was part of a population that didn't contribute anything to later Europeans, no more closely related to Europeans than he is to East Asians. So that individual went extinct just like the Neanderthals did. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, well, let's fast forward to much more recent times. One of the most dramatic movements of population in your book is the great sweep of people east out of the Russian steppes about four and a half thousand years ago, the Yamnaya culture moving westward right across Europe and into British Isles, supplanting the existing population. What can you tell us about that? Because it's a really quite a dramatic and surprising discovery. Yes. So the Yamnaya, as I understand it from the archaeology, are an extraordinary population from an archaeological point of view. Prior to that, they lived north of the Black and Caspian Seas. And prior to the Yamnaya, 
the groups who lived before them were settled in villages on the riverbanks. And once the Yamnaya culture arose, those settlements disappeared, and the only remains from the Yamnaya largely are these large graves. And the thought is that these people were living in the newly invented carts and using horses that had been newly domesticated to go out into the open steppe and economically exploit the grasslands that had not been exploited before using horse and wheel technology. These people were very wealthy compared to the people who'd lived before. They were economically exploiting the landscape much better, and they expanded in an extraordinary way, supplanting many of the groups that lived before. Genetically, if we look at data from Central Europe, for example, Germany, beginning 8,000 years ago and moving to 4,000 years ago, we see that the first farmers, beginning around 7,500 years ago, were pretty continuous in that region until about 4,500 years ago, when that population is replaced, about 70% at least, by people moving in from the east, derived from these Yamnaya people. A few hundred years later, that happens in Britain too, and the replacement is even more dramatic. The replacement is 90% from a population who's largely derived from these Yamnaya people. So there's a very great expansion of this group, and it's a mystery why this expansion occurred and why they were able to replace these densely settled, sophisticated farming populations who were already established. For example, the people who built Stonehenge here were largely replaced by this westward movement. When you say replace, do you think it was an aggressive, warlike invasion? Is that the way to look at it? I think that that's probably not the right way to look at it. These people were not organized in large-scale societies. There were not armies. There's no evidence of such things. But it may not have been particularly friendly. An example of this, we have unpublished data that we're working on in Iberia, where the contrast is even stronger. In Britain, the population is 90% replaced, but in Iberia, it's only 20% replaced by these new types of people. But the Y chromosomes, which are inherited from father to son to son, are almost completely replaced. And so what you're seeing is evidence of social inequality writ in the genes where, for example, males from these incoming population have preferential access to local females over the males that are the offspring of the local people. And that happens again and again, generation after generation. We see this more recently in the Americas, where, for example, Latinos who are mixtures of Native American and European ancestry are also affected by this process where European males coming from Europe had preferential access to local females over the local people, again and again over many generations. And in African Americans? Also in African Americans, about 20% on average of African American ancestry is from Europeans, but four to one ratio of that is coming from the male side. And that is, well, we can imagine why that is, the men of the household, the white slave owners having access to female African slaves these patterns in the genes are evidence of past suffering and inequality and events that were quite profound when they occurred. Going back to Britain and the supplanting of the people who built Stonehenge and all the other megaliths, it's tempting from what you've said in your book and other evidence to think of that as a rather idyllic, peaceful culture and the people who came in from the East as being more aggressive spreading inequality and being generally less, in 21st liberal terms, desirable. Is that a fair picture? So the first person who became super interested in the Yamnaya and the possibility that they spread east or that they had a cultural impact east was someone named Maria Gumbutas, 
who had a very dramatic picture of the Yamnaya as a very male-oriented hierarchical society that was not a very nice society, replacing a very female-centered society that she documented in what she called Old Europe, where there's a lot of female iconography and archaeological remains and Venus figurines being replaced by these people. And as a geneticist, it's not my place to really think about these issues. But we can show that the westward movement of these people had a really dramatic effect. Okay, is there in fact some sort of clash or antagonism between geneticists and ancient DNA practitioners such as yourself and the more traditional archaeologists and paleontologists? That's a great question, and I actually think it's not a clash, but rather a meeting of two worlds. I think archaeologists are fundamentally scientists. They're deeply, deeply interested in the past and prehistory, a time when there's no writing, and archaeologists are so thirsty for information about this time. There have been past scientific revolutions in archaeology. The most important in the first one was the radiocarbon dating revolution, which provided direct dates on ancient cultures and really changed the way people saw the past. This is a more important revolution even than that, but archaeologists have embraced each past scientific revolution. The practitioners of this revolution are not trained in archaeology, so we perhaps don't always speak with the nuance that the archaeologists have in their own fields. And so we need, it's incumbent on us as geneticists to try to talk to as many archaeologists as we write our papers and to learn from our archaeologist colleagues so that we can express our findings in a way that does not grate against the ears of archaeologists and allows them to think about our results in ways that make sense for their work. In the case of Britain, for example, I think it's very important to emphasize that this is not necessarily an invasion. In fact, it's unlikely to be an invasion with a large army coming in, and that somehow we have to think about what kinds of human processes could have, in such a short time, just a couple of hundred years, replaced 90% of the population. Now, your book tells us in rich and marvelous detail what ancient DNA tells us about the movement of populations. But you say much, much less about what it tells us about the physical characteristics of these people moving around the world, what they looked like, how they might have thought, what they might have spoken. They talk a bit about linguistics. Do you stay away from that because it's all too sensitive or just because the genes are not yet telling you enough about the sort of physical and biological characteristics of these people? I think it's very much the latter. I don't have a problem with talking about sensitive things, and I think it's important to actually discuss sensitive things. But in fact, genetics is very much at the beginning in terms of being able to make predictions about how people looked and people's health. If you scan your genome, even a modern person, and try to predict your risk for heart disease or diabetes or cancer, you get a very poor prediction how much worse it is for ancient peoples. We really are very poorly able to predict how ancient people looked from genetic data. So while you can say some trivial things like a prediction about the hue of a person's skin or the color of their eyes, we can say almost nothing about how they thought or behaved. And so really, genetics is only at the very beginning and being able to tell stories about those things, although that will change over time. Yet your book and ancient DNA research more generally is, to some extent, rekindling a debate about the modern scientific basis of race. Does race have any scientific meaning at all in 2018, do you think? I think race doesn't have any scientific meaning at all. Race is a social concept. It emerges out of categories that change over time. People who would be classified as being of one race, black, for example, in Brazil, would not be classified as being black in the United States, for example, and vice versa. And even within the United States, it's changed over time. 
But when people are categorized into, quote, races today, some of those categories do correlate strongly to real genetic average differences amongst populations. And so because there are real genetic average differences amongst populations in the world, then human populations have been separated for substantial periods of time. There is the opportunity for there to be substantial average genetic differences across human populations with regard to a range of traits. And so we need to think about that. And what's your thinking about it telling you so far? Well, I think we know almost nothing, as I mentioned before, about what the actual genetic basis for the stereotyped differences amongst human populations. And if we know anything, it's almost certainly that those stereotypes don't have a genetic basis, that they're almost all culturally determined and quite possible the genetics is pushing in a direction opposite to the stereotype. However, people of West African ancestry and European ancestry, for example, are from populations that have been separated for 70,000 years or more. And that's more than enough time for natural selection and evolution to change average traits across populations. So there is opportunity for differences to arise. Humans are not all genetically identical, and human populations are not all genetically identical. And so I think that it's not appropriate to say that the differences between human populations are so trivial that there can't be any differences that are arise. I think that it's important to prepare our society to have a robust enough way of talking to be able to handle any differences that are discovered, and they will be discovered over the coming years, even though we don't yet know what they are. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a huge pleasure reading your book and now talking to you about some of your findings, and good luck with your future research. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>